This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Red Herrings. New Indian Crime Cinema. Richard Eads Harrison. And The London Stone. sponsor this week is Atlas Games and their beloved time-honored storytelling card game, Once Upon a Time. As you might have been able to guess from that pressy, in Once Upon a Time, players tell a story together using cards. Each player has a number of cards with fairy tale elements on them. Like a dragon, a stepmother, a journey, a palace. Each player also has one ending card. Like, and so his wound was healed, but his heart remained forever broken. To play Once Upon a Time, one player starts telling a story and laying down their element cards. For example, once upon a time, a brave knight set out on a grand adventure. And then you play your knight card. But other players can get control of the story. When a new player takes over, they continue where the last player left off. Weaving in their own element cards. The goal is to play all your elements and then play your ending card so the story makes sense. Great for role players. Great for kids who are usually better at it than adults. Great for fiction writers to sharpen storytelling, if not editing, skills. Pyramid Magazine called it one of the best games of the millennium. Games Magazine called it the best family card game of the year. Designed by, among others, James Wallace of Baron Munchausen and Nobilis fame. The third edition of Once Upon a Time is out now, with a bunch of expansions and more on the way. But Atlas Games has a problem. They still have copies of the second edition left. For a limited time, Atlas is blowing out the still great second edition at a liquidation rate that includes shipping and handling? Check it out on the web at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. So, what are the key things to remember? Once Upon a Time is a card game that's great for role-playing and storytellers. Check. It's an award-winning game created by a towering genius of gaming. Check. There's a limited time chance to check it out at a liquidation pricing. Check. And all the details are at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. Indeed they are at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. A mystery listener asks Ken and Robin, how do you handle red herrings in your games? And rather than chase the red herring of the identity of our mystery listener, I will ask you, Robin, how do you handle red herrings in your games? First of all, mystery listener, remind me who you are and we'll credit you in a future episode, perhaps the upcoming all-lightning-round super-duper anniversary episode. So red herrings are a big issue in investigative games, and I have found that as a scenario designer which is the same thing as being a GM making things up on the fly, except you don't get paid for it or have a record of it afterwards, <laughs> that uh, red herrings are something you do not need to put into a mystery, usually, because the players will come up with plenty of red herrings and false alleys that you had never considered. They will often talk their way into other things possibly being true, depending on the social contract surrounding whether the mystery being solved has to be the one that you thought of ahead of time or can be something else. You might even decide that the uh, crazy blind alley that they go down is actually the truth and ignore what you had planned, or you might uh, have them go down that false lead for a while and then get back uh, toward the mystery as you had envisioned it. But players complicate mysteries enough without 
having to handle them except possibly to traffic manage them uh, when they show up. Ken, is that your experience? I think that in my experience, players generate so many red herrings that you, the GM, almost never need to do it yourself. That your job is so much more often getting them back, you know, even remotely pointed towards what you thought the solution was. And plenty of times, if it can be, the solution should be, oh, no, that wasn't a red herring. I just changed the answer. And it turns out you're geniuses and you were right all along. Look at you. Good job. They were just wearing that, you know clothing and brick dust and matchbooks from the other location to fool you, but you weren't fooled. Now, what percentage of your players would you say over the years would feel cheated if they thought that you were changing the mystery to suit what they were doing versus how many are happy to have an exciting, fun narrative and don't care what the notional version of it was before the actual game started? I think that in my, and again, my games are far from, you know, generalizable from, because they're players for me, uh, who I have, I've sort of trained. I think that my players make a sort of distinction in their minds between sort of the major mysteries of the setting, that they would feel cheated if I just lied and said, no, you're right, it was whatever you thought. Because they, part of their fun is trying to outwit me and figure out and think like I think and say, well... It's got to be based on Planetary and Declare, because that's what Ken's books or games are always based on. So which one is it going to be and what part of, of the thing? Versus individual, you know, sort of single episode mysteries, who killed that man type stuff, where, again, what they enjoy about playing with me is sort of the the invention and the scenery and the excitement and the, and the color and the weirdness. And that will happen whether they're right or wrong. And so they might as well be right so that they can check off who killed that man and move on to the next batch of invention and excitement and weirdness. So they have sort of a, a dual sense of what is kosher for me to do that on and what is not kosher for me to do that on. And I think any player group, there's going to be some degree of, yeah, all right, we're happy just to go through, even if it's just the secret door to the east leads to boring and the secret door to the west leads to fun, so I'm just going to swap them and no one's going to know the difference, which is, you know, bog standard D&D play versus you know, a full-on lengthy murder investigation in which you've either by your own fecklessness or by the player's robust refusal to see clues in front of their face, let go all the way to the far end of the universe and redoing it would actually just be a misery. Right. And I think we're moving on to a bunch of other things that are perhaps different segments. So the <laughs> Red uh, herrings, the, if you will. <laughs> yes. There's, there's the issue of, of the false choice. Uh, where you feel that you had a choice between do two doors, but you were really going to whatever door you opened was the interesting door. And I think that's where uh, players who do object to the mystery being swapped around on them are, are feeling is that it's not really an achievement, but just the illusion of a, an achievement. But to, to get back, I guess, on track toward the red herring, if that <laughs> has ever been a sentence, the way that information works in a mystery is that, you know, very often, like in a classic Agatha Christie mystery, the whole point is to make you think that somebody else out of the list of possible suspects did it in chapter six and in chapter uh, nine and in chapter 12 and in chapter 15, where you keep thinking it's somebody else. And then, of course, it's the one that they who is left after all of the other possibilities are eliminated. You also see uh, red herrings or false leads in 
law and order, for the, particularly the classic law and order in the first half where it's the police investigation, will often wind up having nothing to do with what the mystery really turned out to be during the second half, during the DA half of the show. And that, I think, is sort of satisfying because it presents us with a more random universe that's random in the way that real police investigations are, where you spend a lot of time narrowing down all the different possibilities. So false leads, I think, if you're going to use build them in at all, and sometimes in a mystery you kind of need to. In fact, the esoterrorist adventure that I was writing just before we started this podcast begins with a couple of scenes where you go to a couple of places and the thing that you discover is that nothing is actually going on in those two places, but you need to find that out. That seemingly negative result is a positive result. It gives you information which you can then use to figure out what's really going on. And that seems true to the way that mysteries work, where, and particularly if you want to give the players the freedom to decide what it is that they're going to investigate first, the natural consequence of that is that some of those avenues have to sort of be null results. So if you know ahead of time that, you know, that it's a false lead, I think we can start looking at techniques to make the false lead feel entertaining and real and part of a co coherent story. So one of those techniques is just to get on with it really quickly. Make sure that, you know, one red herring doesn't lead to another red herring or to another red herring, but to make it pretty clear early on that they have found a false lead and that by finding a false lead, they've done something positive. They've eliminated something from their list. And for that, I will often uh, kind of break out of the step-by-step, moment-by-moment narrative and then say something like, uh, and after another six hours of legwork, you come to the conclusion that nobody in this neighborhood knows anything. So from the character point of view, it is still a realistic investigation where there's a ton of fruitless, wasted effort as you cross things off your list of possibilities. But from the character point of view, it's edited just the way that an episode of a mystery TV show would be. Yeah, one of the things that I enjoy about Gumshoe is that when you are presenting a red herring, it is easier to do it as a character-empowering moment than it is in a more standard sort of detective story. Because with Gumshoe, you have not just permission, but it's the expectation of the game set that you will say, having looked into this guy's story, your criminology tells you that this was a red herring. You're an expert enough detective to know that this is a red herring and is not part of the real story. And that is, if you look, if you, because the Agatha Christie model, I think, makes a distinction between the reader and the detective. Because the detective, Poirot, always says, how oh, could you have been fooled by that red herring I saw through it from the very first, <laughs> right? Whereas the reader is who we as players, I think, think we're identifying with. And so there is a sense, or maybe as the, as the designer, or as the GM, to say, well, if I don't fool the players, if I don't fool the players, I'm not fooling the reader and it's not a real mystery. But obviously, the detective, especially in your classical Agatha Christie stories, as opposed to maybe your more uh, gritty police procedurals of a later era, uh, or your sort of, uh, even your, your Sam Spades, who solve problems by being beaten up until the solution falls into their lap, that their ability to see past the red herring is what makes them the great detective, which is to say what makes them the player characters. And so the the sort of player-empowering modus of, of Gumshoe, I find, really works well. And you could put red herrings in with a 
confidence that the GM can say to the player, fortunately, human terrain tells you there's no way anyone would have been here at night, uh, and so his story falls apart immediately, or whatever. And that gives you a, a player-empowering moment in a red herring, which is not usually the experience. Right, and that's a really interesting point you make about the sort of classic Christie mystery in that it's a one in which the thing that we most care about about the main character's point of view is withheld from us until the end when he reveals it like a magician. And so that raises another question of how the heck you would ever do a role-playing game with a prototype character because, you know, that that separation and, and surprise uh, isn't there. So because, as you point out, that doesn't work, um, if you're looking at the way that red herrings are, are presented in those stories, those stories are not a great model for what we're doing unless uh, someone can come up with a solution for that disjunction between audience and, and character, which, of course, is absolutely uh, natural when you're reading a novel, but which uh, we don't have in role-playing games. One of the other sort of, I don't want to say it's a solution to the problem, but it's a meta-opportunity, I guess, or an opportunity of the problem, is that as you're investigating the red herring, especially in a police procedural or a street-level type investigation game or a game where you're uh, paying attention to the setting, even a red herring provides you with benefits later on. So you meet the local priest while you're ruling out the fact that the, that the angry young teen could have done it. The local priest is then the guy who says, oh, by the way, there's someone on the next block who says she's possessed by demons. Obviously, you know, I have to ask the bishop, but maybe you could look into it between now and then and see if it's something for reals. Or you meet a bartender while you're shaking down, you know, a, a bad customer in his bar. Turns out the bad customer is just a bad customer. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a scumbag, but he's not a murdering scumbag. But the bartender's happy that you got him out of his bar, so he does use some solids later on. So you use those moment those sort of seemingly pointless red herring moments as ways to deepen the setting and to tie the players more player characters more thoroughly into it. And so that's an opportunity that you can use in sort of the later model, your your law and order model where the cops seemingly wander around New York City at random accosting people until the commercial break when they can finally, you know, arrest somebody. Right. And and those scenes quite often just sort of revel in the local color and the interactions with the characters. So right. if you have a player in the game or players who really enjoy those sorts of banter with one-time only supporting characters, they may enjoy the red herrings and the tooling around uh, even more than they enjoy the, the mystery. So you can also do things that bring out the characterization of the characters so that you have a scene, you know, they go to the bar to find out where the uh, bookie is, and the bookie may not have anything to do with the mystery, but maybe he has something to do with one of the characters gambling problems. And so that then, in moderation, can provide another justification. Or, you know, there's just you learn about the place that if your mysteries are such that you're going to a new place each time, you can learn more about sort of the local color and background. And I, I can sort of slip in uh, clues that will be important later, even though those aren't the clues that you're uh, looking for. Right. And I guess ultimately with the question of player-generated red herrings, you want to look at how much freedom do you want to give the players to make choices that you can't make interesting. And in other games that aren't about investigation, if they go off in a way that where you can't immediately think of how to develop what it is that they're doing, you can bring in you know, the guy you plan for them to meet in the castle, you meet, for the, meet them you know, out at the baker's uh, place just 
sort of by coincidence and you kind of elide the fact that it's a coincidence or try to find a reason why that is. But because mysteries have more logical structure that you're trying to uncover, uh, you want to avoid coincidences at all times because players are alert to coincidence and will think it's meaningful when really it's just you uh, sort of treading water trying to um, make something interesting happen. So I think it's the, the earlier technique where you just sort of indicate you conclusively determine using all of your skills that uh, this was not the way to go is almost always the, the better way to do it, un unless, as, a, as we also already indicated, uh, they are looking for a more improvised experience and are perfectly happy to find a solution to the mystery, not the solution that you had in mind in the first place. The danger of that, though, is that if people are really invested in solving the mystery, they will feel cheated if they realize that all of their initial you know, first half of the session or first session of a two-part uh, mystery actually meant nothing because you changed who the killer was in the last hour. Uh, that can be disappointing for people. Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, this is sort of anodyne advice, but do it if you think it works and don't do it if you think you can't get away with it is probably the best way to do it. But what you don't want more than anything is for the players to come away and say, we wasted three hours of that game. And the trouble is that they can say that either if you switched at the last minute to let them find the criminal and they and they caught you and they said, well, we wasted the first three hours of that because you were just going to let us find the criminal regardless. Or they spend three hours looking for the wrong guy, get disconsolate, go back to their headquarters, and then, you know, when the criminal sends a guy to shoot them, they beat him up and find the criminal's name. Then they feel like they wasted the three hours of investigation. So the trouble is to... I guess the challenge is, regardless of where the players are, never let it be a boring place that they're going. If they're going to a just inveterately boring place in the campaign world, you have to give them a something exciting that does happen there, or you have to move them out of it. And either you move them out of it with an attack, or you move them out of it with a threat to something in another part of the campaign world, or you move them out of it with a with a carrot, with some you know, with you know, while they're there shaking down guys in the suburbs, you know, uh. Uh, a phone call comes in from the priest back downtown, and he says, I, I, I know that uh, you guys generally don't like to do things at night, but I heard that there's going to be a big ceremony at night in the park from one of my parishioners, so maybe you could go you know, check that out, and that will bring them back into it. That's what NPCs exist for. Right, and what you're pointing to there is something that is absolutely standard in real police work, right? Yeah. Real police work is usually about waiting for somebody to pick up the phone and call you mm -hmm. and reveal the thing that you've been looking for all along. In a fictional narrative, like a role-playing game, you have to make that feel more earned, even though it's how things really happen. So the way to make it feel earned is to give the players chances at the beginning where you just say, okay, so what? while you're going off to check out these guys, are there any other feelers you put out in the community? And so then they can say, oh, well, yeah, we, we call up our priest friend and tell him to see if there's anything uh, weirdo happening. And then you go off and investigate the red herring. And then when the priest calls you, it feels like a win because you already set that right. up yeah. rather than the, G the hand of the GM going, oh, everything that's happened for the last half hour is boring and stupid. Let's uh, ignore it and get on to the interesting part. Which is why, again, when you're doing a red herring, if you can make a human connection during that scene then you can feel like you earned it just by being nice to the NPC as opposed to earned it through any necessarily intellectual rigor on your part. But the reward for being nice to the NPC is still one that I think is the GM you want to uh, in reinforce, right? You want to make sure that the players are, understand that their characters are part of a society, not 
um, uh, wandering anarchic, uh, uh, you know, Ayn Rand people with battle axes. Right. So even if you have your witness who doesn't have any information, say, well, uh, sorry, I can't help you. I'll keep an ear out. Uh, that's something that can either be just something he says and doesn't pay off, or it can be sort of a, a chip that you can cash in later when you uh, need somebody to intervene and uh, get them back toward uh, the original mystery. So I think that we have run this particular red herring to Earth, which implies, ironically, that it's time to leave it alone and move on to the next pod. In a courtyard, uh, we gather as uh, an outdoor projection of a three-hour movie full of uh, crime and curry-flavored popcorn and uh, love and romance, or in this case, crime, crime, and crime commences. We are entering the cinema hut, and this week I thought we would uh, follow up on a comment that you made in an earlier cinema hut segment about how you are digging so much of the new Indian crime cinema, that uh, crime movies in India are not a new thing by any means, but there's sort of a wave of interesting films coming along now. And I am kind of hoping that the, some of these are things that I'll be able to enjoy. The mainstream Bollywood musical or romantic comedy has never really caught my fancy, unlike the similarly sort of stylized uh, uh, Hong Kong cinema. I just kind of usually find it corny. It doesn't have the kind of mitigating layers of sort of uh, melancholy or romanticism that I find in Hong Kong cinema. But I have uh, seen a few interesting Indian crime movies, and uh, some of them are on Netflix. So I'm hoping that you will be able to uh, hip me as well as your listeners to a uh, starter set of Indian crime flicks. So uh, Ken, what do you have to recommend to us this week? Well, um, I would start uh, just sort of chronologically, if in no other sense, with Shole, which is the movie that sort of set the scene for what Bollywood movies were going to turn into. It it's, was crazily violent for a movie of its time. It was made in uh, 1975, I think. It was a basically it was uh, made as a response to the spaghetti westerns. The Indian directors saw what Sergio Leone was doing and the other spaghetti western directors, and they were saying, we can do that, even if we don't have a west. We can still do it because we have dangerous drifters with guns and we have horrible, horrible criminals and we can make this happen. And so they make, they made a movie. It was, you know, a giant smash hit. It, it's probably still playing somewhere in India right now, uh, <laughs> possibly continuously. Um, it is a, a, a massive hit, a huge critical success as well. And it's basically just a straightforward Western moved into the sort of the world of, of Indian bandits and politics, which, of course, are overlapping concerns for crime films in America. It's just that they're even more foregrounded in India, where crime and politics are, are you know, more intimately uh, linked in the public imagination as well as in reality. So uh, I would start with Shole. Shole also, by the way, has a scene in which the dancing girl, the heroine, is forced to dance on broken glass that will make you uh, think that John McClane is just being a big baby in Die Hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's it's just a terrific movie. I mean, it's it's big, it's loud, it's exciting. If you're a fan of of the western at all, you'll you'll get sort of a same some of the same uh, juice that you get out of the the visualizations and the and the presentations of good and evil. 
Um, it's just a terrific movie. I don't know that it's, um, it's one that, uh, is necessarily, you know, part of the new crime scene, but I think you can trace the elements of the new crime genre back to what sort of came into Indian cinema, or at least came into it in a big, loud, money-making way in show And uh, listeners who've seen the uh, long and highly recommended Story of Film miniseries, Sholay gets a big play in that, including the, the glass dancing scene as a real sort of milestone in where Indian commercial cinema went. So that was definitely one when I saw that, uh, along with the great... Uh, I love, actually, the Indian movie music from that period, which is... Uh, has all these elements of uh, it's Sergio Leone plus Sly and the Family Stone plus uh, Indian classical music, yeah. all sort of mushed together with a bit of crime jazz in there. And so uh, I sometimes uh, listen to the soundtracks of that era, even though I haven't seen the movies. Also, I should mention that Shole is sort of the breakout movie for Amitav Bakchan, who is sort of India's Clint Eastwood, Robert De Niro, and Marlon Brando all combined into one iconic figure. I mean, he's the absolute man's man, boss actor of Bollywood, and has been, you know, pretty much continuously since 1975. So, if you want to see him sort of at the at the real uh, noon of his career, the high noon of his career, possibly literally, you want to watch uh, him play Jai in Shole. He's, he's obviously terrific. Now, I do have one recommendation to put into the hopper here, and that's from 1987. It's a film called Nyakan. Uh, by a director named uh, Manny Ratnam. I saw that at uh, the Toronto International Film Festival, and that was at a time when they were sort of touting him as the interesting auteur Indian director. He showed up and seemed somewhat uh, abashed by that, and indeed I don't think has uh, uh, sort of continued in that vein. But uh, Nayakan is kind of the Indian equivalent of Godfather 1 and 2 all together, and uh, is a really great epic family dynasty crime movie that I would highly recommend. And they remade it in Hindi, as they often do, as uh, Dayavan, um, with Vinod Khanna and Madhuri Dixit, who is one of the, the great leading ladies of Bollywood. Um, and Dayavan, I think, is it's kind of early in her career, so that that's pretty great, too. Um, so on to somewhat newer things. Yes, uh, newer things. More recently, I think if you're, certainly if you're looking for the sort of uh, movies that you can work your way into Bollywood through. It is very, very difficult to resent or resist Doom, the Doom series, which are heist movies, not necessarily crime movies. So I don't know if they're going to necessarily meet Robin's strict uh, concerns, but they are just compellingly watchable. This despite perhaps the lamest sidekick in the history of lame sidekicks, Uday Chopra as the sidekick to Abhishek Bakchan, that's Amitabh's son, who is sort of being groomed to take his father's place uh, in Indian cinema. He's the serious detective who's hunting a master thief uh, down and um, uh, in Doom, and his idiot sidekick falls in love with the beautiful Ishadil, who, no surprises to anyone, turns out to be the master thief involved. And Doom is just... It's got uh, a, a big crazy dance number at the very end that's in a hotel in Goa, I think it is, where they're having the final heist. And the heist, as you know in, in good heist movies, heists are always choreographed. They're always synchronized. Everyone's looking at their watches and they know we have 18 seconds to do this and 45 seconds of this. With this movie, it takes it all the way up. The heist is literally choreographed to the last musical number. So, it's split screen. You can see the, uh, Isha Diol doing her job of distracting the cops by dancing with both of them. 
in the big New Year's Eve party in Goa while the rest of her gang carries out the heist synchronized to the dance that she knows she will be doing at New Year's Eve. So it's just it, it's just a mind-blowing moment of meta and real cinema coming together at the end of what's a really good heist movie. And also, uh, if you don't love uh, Abhishek Bakchan as a, a, a smoldery cop and Isha Diol as a super hot thief, then your aesthetics are all wrong and you need to go watch cinema for very homely people somewhere because that's the only thing that will, will charm you. And for those that are typing into search engines, that's D-H... O-O-M. Right. And Doom turned out to be a big hit, uh, a bigger hit than anyone thought it was going to be. And so what they did was they brought the cop characters back for Doom 2, which is a sequel, and they added two more thieves, and the thieves were even bigger stars than last time. Uh, Hrithik Roshan, who is one of the sort of um, uh, uh, great male leading men of, of, of Bollywood, and Ashwarya Rai, who is now the wife of Abhishek Bakchan, but I think at that time was either just engaged to him or, or wasn't um, uh, connected to him up yet. But she's sort of, you know, the most beautiful woman in the world, a uh, gigantic star in India, literally worshipped as a goddess in places. And once you see Doom 2, you'll understand why. This one um, also introduces uh, Bipasha Basu, who I believe was briefly in the original one, but shows up in this one both as Bipasha Basu and has her own twin sister. So... It's at that point that I forgive Doom 2 pretty much everything that it does. Um, and it's another big set-piece heist movie, lots of action, lots of chases, lots of the sorts of things that you look at. Yeah, I, I don't think it works as well as Doom 1 as a story, but I think as a pretty thing to look at on the screen, it works even better. And so, again, if you're a fan of heists and chases, and um, there's plenty of, of tortured melancholy romance for Robin... Uh, because obviously Ashwarya Rai is desperately in love with Friedrich Roshan, and um, Abhishek Bakchan is angry because his wife is on another continent, and his idiot sidekick is getting to make time with Bipasha Basu. So there's um, there, there's lots of stuff going on. It's, it happens during Carnival in in Brazil, so there's lots more excuses to dance and, and go crazy. It, it's just another you know what they call a complete filmy in in Bollywood, meaning it's got all the elements, and in this particular case, it's got. Some, some really good set pieces and stunt pieces, as well as the, the ongoing, very melodramatic uh, uh, story. And uh, not long ago, in the local multiplex that occasionally shows Bollywood movies, along with the occasional Hong Kong or even Filipino movie, I saw a giant standee for Doom 3. Uh, Doom 3 was filmed in Chicago. Ah. And oh my goodness, does Chicago look good when Bollywood people film it. Um, if you look up uh, the review that Film Critic Hulk did of Doom 3, it broke Film Critic Hulk because he's just <laughs> he's just not uh, capable of understanding how Bollywood works, apparently. But it, you will not like Film Critic Hulk when he sees Bollywood. No, he, it, it, well, I, I liked it an awful lot because I thought it was hilarious. So from the uh, glossy and entertaining to the docudrama. Right. Uh, we have Black Friday, which is a crime film in the docudrama um, vein. I guess, and it is uh, about the Bombay bombings in 1993, and it's sort of trying to tell those stories. The movie was made in 2004, and this, I think, is one of those movies that Indian film has always been a little bit nervous about making movies about real stuff. They, they're happy to have Pakistan be bad guys. They're happy to do movies about the, the wars that India's been in, but when it comes to actually naming and pointing fingers at real mobsters because real mobsters wind up funding a lot of Bollywood and are interrelated to real Bollywood in a very incestuous way. I mean, it makes Mickey Cohen look like nothing, uh, right. the way that Bollywood... And, and because the political fault lines are 
very powder keggy there. Yeah. And so there's there's a, there's there's been a degree of nervousness I think in Bollywood up until like I say this movie kind of about touching those issues. And so this movie is um uh, is like I say it's a it's a recreation of the 1993 terrorist bombings, the Bombay bombings that were carried out in that case by both Muslim terrorists and by the primarily Muslim crime organization, the organized crime groups, the D Company. And this is just a really good, it's not quite cinema verite because it's still Indian, but it's very, it's got a very, very strongly realistic, uh, tone to it. So if, if your notion of crime is that it has to come sort of from the Jean-Pierre Melville, everyone is scowly and looking at the crime type, uh, approach, then maybe this is the, 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 your gateway movie into Bollywood crime movies. And it's, it's very good. And it's got one of the greatest chase scenes I think that's ever been filmed, a foot chase through this Indian market that just seems to go on forever and is just, it's just startlingly good. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of that. So I, obviously the movie's great, um, just as a, as a docudrama. Um, it's, it's one of those sort of things in a way, uh, reminiscent of, of some of these new waves of, of docudramas and crime dramas that have been showing up, uh, lots of other places than India. But I think that in this case, India was sort of at the, at the forefront of it. Uh, so the next one on your list is called Shootout at Lok Handwala, which is also based on a real incident. Yeah, this is a big, basically there were uh, Sikh, I don't know if they were militants or they were criminals, but they were, you know, in a building and the cops Sometimes it's like hard it. to tell. It, in India, it's super hard to tell. But they, there was a, just a gigantic gun battle, um, again in Mumbai, and this is sort of a big, sprawling, zillion-person cast, infinite plot type movie, and it is, you know, and of course you know that it's going to culminate in just a supernally good shootout. So I think that this is one of those that will help you go into the, the, the movie if you, if you sort of watch it, not as a super long movie, but as a really short soap opera, only with a gunfight at the end. <laughs> that might be the, the way to approach this. But it's, again, the, the local Sikh groups complained because the Sikhs were painted as bad guys, and the, the real criminals complained because people could tell who they were, and the cops complained because it looked like uh, there was um, uh, they were being less understanding about they occasionally just surround a building and shoot everyone in it. So it, it, it made everyone mad, which I guess is a good sign. And again, it's just a good, it, it, it's a, it's a good straightforward crime film. I don't think that it's one of the, you know, straight up masterpieces like Sholay, but it's really, really watchable. And I think it's really, again, it's a, it's a way in for, for these things. So the word, uh, shootout must have become a commercial draw because there's also a film you want to recommend called Shootout at Wadala. Yes, um, and uh, Shootout at Wadala is a sort. It's a sequel in the same series, although it's a different director, um, and it stars John Abraham as uh, Manya Survey, who is uh, the sort of one of the legendary Robin Hood gangsters. India has the same sort of, I guess, fraught relationship with its with its mobsters that America did in the 30s, where since most of the people they were robbing were rich jerks, we could say John Dillinger was kind of a good guy. And so since most of the people that are being robbed, most of the people who have money at all in India are to one degree or another bent, it, uh, it's harder to have your, your, your sympathies firmly on one side or the other. But Manya Survey, the real Manya Survey was kind of a bad dude. The movie Manya Survey, we are given to understand that he is uh, a hero to children and was beaten up and, and maltreated by the society, but is also still kind of a bad dude. And much this, like Gamera. Much like Gamera. And this movie is, is something you still have to save on your long-term Netflix queue because it was a 2013 release. Uh, you can't uh, just pop it into your queue the way that you can with a shootout at uh, Lokandwala. 
And Doom, of course, is on instant streaming. You could watch it right now instead of listening to us, but I wouldn't recommend that, surely. So Shootout with Dala is, is a more standard, you know, here's how this one guy got to the point of being shot down like a dog in a, in a community college, basically, in India. And the, it, it's very, very sort of orthodox in its structure. I think it's less successful than Shootout Lokonwala, uh, or maybe it's, it's less ambitious than Shootout Lokonwala, but I don't think that it succeeds quite as much. Part of it is because they were going to name the actual criminal, uh, Dawood Ibrahim, who this sort of is one of the stories of his rise. They were going to name him in the film, and then at the very last minute, someone said, oh, he's still alive, and they changed all the names. And so I think that there were some, some hasty reshoots that may have marred uh, the film a little bit. But I, I enjoyed it, certainly, uh, a good deal. Um, it doesn't, it, it's not considered a classic by any stretch, but if you're a crime fan, this is going to be a film that you'll enjoy, I think. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Mumbai uh, not only draws on a classic film title trope, but is this also about Dawood Ibrahim? Yeah, this is um, the sort of rise to power of Dawood Ibrahim. The hero of it uh, is Ajay Devgan, who is um, one of the worst dancers in Bollywood. And it is a That's fun, saying something. It is a fun tactic when you see him in a film in which he has to dance to note the the paucity of shots of his feet <laughs> during during the film and often his choreography is to stand still while better dancers move around him as though he is a chair or other obstacle ajay plays an older mobster haji mastan who is a sort of a character in your film nyakon as well so all these movies are telling the same sort of overlapping historical story uh his sort of uh, young scrappy uh, underling who he promotes is supposed to be the dawood ibrahim character played by Emran Hashmi, who is uh, known as the Kissing Bandit in India for his tendency when he is the leading man to kiss women and therefore make the film unshowable in certain provinces. Uh, <laughs> and also, he looks very much like a, like a hamster. So when you watch the film, <laughs> always, be, always be careful well, to... Kissing uh, Bandit is a better nickname than Hamster than Hamster-looking guy, yeah. But I, we, always, we, we always suspect that there's cedar chips just out of, just out of the camera <laughs> shot. Ready for him to, to munch on in between takes. But uh, Emran Hashmi's weird rodent-like charisma aside, it actually works in this one in sort of a Sam Rockwelly way where he's uh, rising up and because Ajay Devgan is A, too much of a good guy, he wants to get into politics and do nice things for the poor. He's in love with a, with a super hot Bollywood starlet, played by an actual super hot Bollywood starlet, Kangana uh, Ranout, or Ranout, who is usually just credited as Kangana, which is why I can't pronounce her last name. And he, because of this sort of oversight, allows Emran Hashmi to rise to power, and we can sort of sense where that's going. The title, Once Upon a Time in Mumbai, promises a few more gunfights than maybe it, the actual film delivers. I think if you think of it more as Once Upon a Time in America and less Once Upon a Time in the West, you get more of an idea of what's going on with this film. Uh, next on your list is Sarkar. Yeah. You talked about Nayakan being Godfather. Sarkar is also Godfather. This is another film starring Amitav Bakchan, in this case sort of in the, in the, in the full flower of his power as a, as a male actor. The movie came out in 2005, and it was about the rise of the Shiv Sena party, which is a hardline Hindu nationalist party in the Bombay area. Uh, the uh, parallels are not exact, but they're close enough that it got everyone you know excited in the way that a good... Uh, um, Roman Aklef does. And this particular uh, film is sort of the f- 
it, it, this would be the Godfather Part One. This is where he rises to power and he brings his his sons into his empire with him, and they have various ideas about how they should run things. And the end is sort of ends on what you can already tell during that film is an artificial upnote, and then Sarkar Raj, which is the next one in the series, and again is recent enough that you can't um, uh, you can't get the disc yet. It uh, you unless you're to listening a, to this in the future or in an Indian neighborhood where you can yeah. buy it uh, over the counter. But Netflix doesn't have it yet. Um, and Sarkar Raj is the sequel, and that's about him having gotten out and then having to come back in and uh, see what the empire that he has built has, has become. And that's kind of the, the part two. And I think that the two films work less well um, uh, apart from each other than they do as, as a full-on epic story. But you may not want to spend five hours watching the things all the way straight through. Um, although the first one's only 120 minutes, so it's only about two hours. So I think that... A mere slip of a thing by Bollywood Yes, standards. just, a, just a, a bagatelle, if you will, a, a, a short feature. Uh, but that is another one of the things where they're taking real political interests and real criminal stories and going much, much closer to the wire than, than Bollywood ever has before. And again, also for the chance just to see Amitav Bakchan, you know, you watched him in Sholay as young Clint Eastwood. Now you're seeing him as old Robert De Niro or old um, uh, Marlon Brando. And, and you get the whole strength of his of his of his acting arc, I guess you would call it, his career arc. And that, I think just for that, it's worth it. Plus, it's directed by Ram Gopal Varma, who is very much a Bollywood's Bollywood director. He is a... In Bollywood, they criticize him for being too sensationalistic and interested in masala scenes. And, I mean, the, the sort of... The art community in Bollywood doesn't much like him because he's very for the masses. I guess he would be the Michael Bay of Bollywood if Michael Bay were a good director. <laughs> Well, uh, maybe that metaphor needs work, but uh, <laughs> who'd be the good Michael Bay? That I don't know. The, maybe the Christopher Nolan of Bollywood? Someone? There we go. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's a lot of uh, titles for people to start typing into their streaming services of choice, because, of course, we all have different Netflixes, uh, which is a philosophical as well as a licensing statement. And uh, <laughs> uh, But if, as you uh, start to... Uh, type those in if your streaming service of choice has a recommendation engine, uh, even if it's not as terrifyingly accurate as uh, Netflix's can be. Uh, that'll get you started, and you can start to explore this uh, new-slash-old corner of cinema at your leisure. sight of charts laid out on the table, of um, uh, compasses being turned back and forth by vaguely nautical-looking gentlemen, the uh, sextant and astrolabe put in the corners of the room once we discovered that they didn't do what we thought that they did based on their names, tell us that we have entered the cartography hut. And here in the cartography hut, Robin, you have uncovered yet another cartographer who has changed the world, as we so often do. Yeah, I recently read an article, which we'll link to on the blog, about Richard Eads Harrison, uh, and he changed the face of map making by not considering himself a cartographer, and it was also one of those people who 
change things by being in the right historical moment. So he was a, a designer of uh, physical objects and an artist. And in the lead up to World War II, he was hired by Fortune magazine to make maps for them. And his maps, first of all, have a great degree of physical beauty to them. The terrain detailing is almost sort of uh, hypnotic in its precision or perhaps apparent precision. But the thing that he really did that changed people's perception of the war and whether America should get into the war was that he played with perspective the way an artist would play with perspective. We're used to the uh, Mercator projection, which is a convenient way of making a round thing look flat. But because it's making a round thing look flat is a distortion and in fact has a political valence to it. It makes the Northern Hemisphere, uh, where many of the listeners to this podcast dwell, seem bigger and more important geographically than the Southern uh, continent. And that's, uh, although subtle, has, I think, a big impact on people's thinking. Uh, whereas Harrison, uh, in ways that I will throw to you su to suggest, can change where the center of the projection was and then change people's perceptions of how close they were to Europe and Japan. Harrison's not so much a revolution, but a, uh, a popularization or a, or a recentering in terms of the, what our, our conception of maps are, is he takes the polar projection and moves that into the pride of place. E even before Harrison, uh, because the 1920s and the 1930s had been such a, a decade for aerial exploration and aerial adventure, and you had people like Admiral Byrd and on the other side of the should we fight the Nazis question, uh, Lindbergh talking about the threat from the air and going over the air, flying over the poles. People began to want to see the world from an aerial perspective as opposed to the nautical perspective of, say, the Mercator projection. Uh, the Mercator projection is terrific for uh, sailing ships because it shows sailing routes all as straight directions. It doesn't show great circle routes, which is how you travel by air that way. They look ridiculously out of shape. But if you put a great circle route on a polar projection, it's easy to see why you have to go over the Aleutians to get to Japan, which is to say it's easy to see why the Japanese are coming through the Aleutians to get to us. So when people look at these polar projections that Eads begins with, or that Harrison begins with, um, they see um, an America sort of at the center of a world of, of big, scary continents floating around it, and that our, our vaunted uh, oceanic barriers are practically nothing up there in the Arctic, and the Nazis are right there over the North Pole, and later on, of course, the polar projection is used to good effect by people who are pointing out that the Soviet Union and all of its missiles and bombers are just there over the North Pole, and you have uh, the sort of Arctic as locus of terror that you, that you see crop up later in things like The Thing. But Harrison takes us out of the world of long boat rides and into the world of short plane trips, and that is sort of the immediate not really a propagandistic message, but it's sort of the immediate um, uh, political point that he's making is that we no longer have the luxury of waiting for people to sail all the way across the ocean, because if you look at the polar projection, Japan is just, it's practically right next to us, or in Germany, right there next to Iceland, and we have to go and stop the Japanese in the Aleutians, and we have to stop the Germans in Iceland, and then we have to get ready to go into Europe. Right, and in order to understand the propagandistic impact of this, and I'm using propaganda in a neutral sense as a communication that convinces you to take a political stance, not necessarily that it's 
uh, an exaggeration or a falsehood, that you have to remember the isolationist context of America at the time, that it's hard for us now to uh, relate to a world where uh, America didn't want to get up in anybody else's business. Uh, but that's, of course, very much where it was in the lead up to uh, World War II. And so that by uh, creating the idea that, you know, Japan is not impossibly distant. If you look at this map here, if you look at it from the top of the globe, they're really close. Um, that then communicates very viscerally the message that America can no longer think of itself as isolated from the rest of the world because the rest of the world is much closer to it than it thinks. Right, and he takes that sort of initial approach of using the polar projection and then he sort of builds on that when he does these painted sort of globe images. They're not really maps, but they're like if you took a really, really detailed topographical globe and you move just a little bit up out of it so you can still see the curvature, he would point out things like just exactly how close uh, Japan is to Alaska, or you would be able to see uh, the Pacific War with Japan looming up there at the top of the globe, and our buddies the Philippines over at one end, and our Hawaii at the other end, and so you have an understanding that Japan, by pushing down into the South Pacific, is actually threatening us in a way that you can't necessarily get off of a Mercator projection, because it's all happening way off at the edge of the map, where nothing counts. And the fact that the global art that he does is also very, very attractive is, you know, it can't be un, uh, underestimated in terms of, of the saleability of his ideas and of his impact as a cartographer and an artist. And they were literally quite saleable because his, uh, his first edition of his map collection sold out before it shipped, mm -hmm. and they had to print more of them. And this was a time uh, when people went map crazy because you needed to be able to follow the progress of what was going on. It's another thing that I think we've lost track of in the modern era of long intractable, localized warfare. Uh, I don't think people have studied their maps of Afghanistan or uh, Iraq the way that uh, people studied their maps of Europe during World War II because uh, things were moving, things were happening, and uh, dominoes were being knocked down and propped back up again. And the, the need to follow what was going on meant that you uh, needed to have and understand a map and that these maps, by being beautiful, uh, you know, it's a real marriage of form and content. Yeah, I think another interesting question could be asked about why the map left the front page. I mean, I remember, you know, uh, during the uh, Iraq war and then recently during the Syrian brouhaha, it's a lot of work to find a map of, you know, what what cities are being held by the insurgents and what cities are being held by us or by, in a serious case, by Assad. You know, what, what, what are the conditions on the ground? Even with this current, uh, you know, resurgence of ISIL in, uh, in Iraq, we don't really have big sprawly maps across the front pages the way that we did back in World War II and even in Korea. I don't know if it ended with Vietnam because, again, like you say, the front line didn't really change and so people thought it was graphically uninteresting or if there's something else some other um, uh, journalistic impulse or political impulse at play. But the map of the war seems to be something that was of that era and is not of our era now. Well, the current insurgent wave in Iraq is certainly an example of a sequel that the American public doesn't want. <laughs> that there's such fatigue, I think, around American interventions elsewhere that, you know, even when forces were over there, people just wanted to put that out of their minds and not uh, think about it. And again, because you can't 
draw a map where Iraq is next to the Aleutians, Mm -hmm. you don't have that sense of connectedness to it, that it's something uh, going on in the developing world there where, you know, uh, that you don't want to know about. Maybe, Ken, you can uh, get that 400-page glossy report that uh, ISIL itself has issued because they issue these big reports to their stakeholders that are uh, sort of a a cross between a corporate perspective and kind of a crude PowerPoint presentation. And they have all these surreal maps or of course they're in Arabic and so forth, but they like have infographics showing how many car bombs they arranged and mm-hmm. how many AK 47 shootings they did and so forth. So uh, I don't know, maybe they got uh, the map going on there or maybe, you know, if you tune in Al Jazeera uh, where there are uh, people watching uh, where their borders might actually change, where they are actually in peril. Uh, it'd be interesting to see uh, to what extent the map is part of people's consciousness when they feel connected to it. I, I do kind of wonder if like the front pages of Haaretz or the Jerusalem Post have got more maps on them than the front page of the Chicago Tribune. And the Chicago Tribune, I suspect, was a latecomer to the map era, even in World War II, because the colonel was a latecomer to being for the war. So um, it, it, that's an interesting question, that maybe the people who want the war are the people who want the map of the war. But uh, certainly uh, any cartographer or art aficionado would want the maps of Richard Eads Harrison. Have you looked to see if those uh, the, that Fortune Atlas is available at all on, you know, uh, ABE books or any sort of... Uh, were enough of them printed that they're cheap or are they expensive collector's items? Do we know that? Uh, they might lead to my purchasing a book of old maps. And since I'm currently looking at uh, selling off collectibles in order to continue to afford to go to the Toronto International Film Festival, I did not take the risk of determining how difficult it is to get uh, one of these collections of, book, of uh, maps by Richard Eads Harrison. Well, then I think we will leave that as a, um, uh, as a goal for our listeners to, to hunt down and find out. Well, that sounds like a conclusive uh, note if I ever heard one, so it's time to uh, pretend that uh, Japan is far away from us again and move to our next hut. The creak of the cobweb stairs, the staring portrait of Madame Blavatsky, and the pool of ichor in the corner tell us we've once again entered the eerie yet inviting parlor of the Consulting Occultist. And this week, the Consulting Occultist is going to tell us about an emblematic hunk of rock that has a magical connection to what is probably, for both of us, one of our favorite cities that we don't live in. I, I think London is my favorite city that I don't live Absolutely. in. Absolutely. I agree. My favorite city that I don't live in is London. Yes. Uh, it is a city I have a neighborhood in, thanks to the hospitality of uh, uh, your publisher and mine, uh, Simon Rogers. But uh, So, Ken, uh, what is the London Stone? Well, the great thing about the London Stone is no one knows what the London Stone is. Like so many things in Britain, it sort of has always been around, it's always been important, and no one has the faintest idea why. It predates uh, people keeping track of stuff. It predates, well, it, it predates people keep tr- keeping track of the London Stone, I think, for definite sure. Well, most stones do predate our <laughs> yes. keeping track in, of them. In fairness, fair. it's true. The London Stone is mentioned, I think, way back in 1598 by uh, John Stowe in his survey of London, uh, in which he says that something lies close to London Stone, and therefore, uh, the London Stone 
must be must be important because it's so important that you just allude to it without knowing what it is. So we know that the London Stone may have been the same as the London Stone mentioned in the Archbishop of Canterbury's London property, Christ Church Canterbury, that says that it is... Oh, how do, how do I put this? The property is owned by a guy who's named Edwicker of Londonstone. So Edwicker is giving, giving himself the name of the Londonstone, and this is in the early 12th century. Uh, we know that the legend is that uh, Jack Cade, the a peasant rebel against the uh, evil Henry VI, or the incompetent Henry VI, actually, not good enough. Not mutually exclusive. Yeah, but in this particular case, um, Jack Cade rides into London and strikes the London stone with his sword, making himself, in his own estimation, the lord of the city. And no one in contemporary accounts says that's odd, but no one in contemporary accounts explains what he thought he was doing either. Now, now whacking a, a stone with a sword is, is much easier than the previous method of pulling a sword out of a stone. Right, yes, it is, it is a good deal easier, but that sword plus stone combo seems to have some sort of magical, what do I want to say, magical resonance or magical uh, hanging onness to it. It shows up as a tourist attraction, obviously, once John Stowe puts it in his Guide to London, and then people start um, showing up and uh, and looking at the stone and doing things to the stone. The Worshipful Company of Spectacle Makers busts up uh, spectacles on the London Stone officially for reasons that I suppose made sense at the time. And again, the that seems to be the, the light motif, that it's a... Uh, <laughs> it's something that made sense at the time. Right. Um, so, well, I think there's a common thread here, which is that it somehow embodies Londonness. That is, is mm-hmm. a, so to speak, a touchstone, a, a source of power and a source of uh, um, power that relates to London and connects you to London in a sense of place. And so the weird thing now is that, you know, Britain is usually pretty good about taking its important historical things and, and uh, storing them somewhere interesting and historic that you can get to them. But uh, Ken, do you want to tell people where this numinous yet enigmatic stone now resides? The current stone now sits... It it was moved in 1742 because it was in the road and people kept running their cart into it. It was moved to the wall of St. Swithin's Church, and then St. Swithin's Church was bombed by the Nazis... And it was stayed in the bombed-out wall, but eventually they had to knock down the bombed-out wall and build a building into it. And the building is 111 Cannon Street, which used to be a bank, and is uh, was put in a you know sort of a a, a nice little uh, I, I guess sort of a, a a little niche in the wall that they put the London Stone into. I think there's like a plexiglass uh, covering I, or something. I think it's it's like a it's like a little metal grating over it. Um, and you can you can look at it. I have not poked it myself, but I've seen it. But it's uh, it's now a W. H. Smith's. It's a it's a it's a mid middlebrow bookstore. It's stuck uh, behind it, a magazine rack, right? <laughs> because they have to put the magazine rack out front where people can get to it. Um, so yeah, that's that's the that's the current uh, ignominious place of what remains of the London Stone. Because even in the uh, Stuart period, they're talking about the remaining stone or the remains of the stone which implies that people during the Elizabethan era, at the very least, were chipping away bits and taking them as souvenirs, or that possibly it got busted by one of those cart accidents uh, early on and uh, had to be removed. Or maybe that the secret powerful half of the London Stone was taken somewhere to, to hang out. Right, because 
Now, if this were the uh, uninteresting rock hut, uh, we could end our story right there. But this is the consulting occultist. And we know that, uh, obviously, the rules of contagious magic mean that taking a stone that embodies London and the power of London and uh, sticking it behind a magazine rack, uh, its ignominy is obviously in there intentionally, that this is some sort of act of negative magic committed against London, presumably, and that uh, somehow, maybe someday, this will be um, rescued from its location and, and given to a more exalted place and some benefit will occur to London. But who's responsible for this and, and what uh, fell or uh, positive magic is it uh, causing to bring into existence? Well, I think that once it gets put into the wall of a bank instead of a church, that is your big indication that something has gone very badly wrong with London, right? So in 1962 is that is a moment at which it's taken out of the wall of a church uh, and put into the wall of a bank. And so the, the polarity of London at that point switches over. And just like when you first close the switch, if the electricity is, is, um, uh, is not particularly well insulated, you'll get a spark. I think maybe that's where the swinging 60s and the Carnaby Street Revolution and the Beatles all come from, is that moment of switching, but then the act of putting it into that wall and then steadily degrading it and lowering it and taking the level of commerce down from banks to bookshops and from bookshops to magazines it's a continuous degradation of uh the mystical power of london and it's an attempt it's been to... stuck behind a dying business model exactly there's several dying business models and then so the fact of this switchover is i think if you if you look at it um from a from a properly uh, cranky uh reactionary sort which is i think what most occultists do um, then the, that that switch is the, is the big key that it's the desacralization of London. Uh, John Mitchell, who is a uh, quite admirable uh, Liptonist, uh, theorizes that the stone was the terminus, the sacred stone, uh, which he says is sacred to Jupiter, but was actually sacred to the god Terminus, um, and was the sacred stone that stood at the center of every major Roman city and could never be. Uh, hidden from sunlight, that the Roman terminus was always visible to sunlight. It was in the middle of a temple of Jupiter, and there was a hole in the roof, so that uh, Jupiter could always look down and make sure that his stone was okay, or the terminus could uh, make sure that his stone was okay. And now that it is in a niche uh, underneath a magazine rack, that's like a double slap at the god terminus and at Jupiter as well. So I think that there is uh, not just a desacralization in the sense of a dechristianization, but a literal desacralization, an attempt to sort of separate London from its fundamental, magical, numinous, spiritual roots. And given the importance of London as a city and the, the time that it was shifted from a church to a bank, is this uh, part of a, a broader global movement to drain uh, magic out of the world and re replace it with filthy lucre? It would not surprise me that that is part of an anti-magical uh, movement that, again, you know, as you as you push a sword against a, a grindstone, you'll see sparks fly off, and that was the great New Age movement, but slowly the, the, the stone will grind away at the sword. Um, I think that that is what's going on here, that you have a global movement, that there are possible, uh, you know, uh, stones of New York that got uh, moved, or stones of Hong Kong that got moved, or whatever, at, at the same time, but because they didn't have John Stowe to call attention to them, we didn't know about it. Um, in this in this context, I do want to mention that uh, the Colonel McCormick, who we mentioned previously as the editor of the <laughs> mad editor and publisher of the Chicago Tribune, also when he built the Tribune building, had magical stones taken and put into the wall 
of the Tribune Tower. And so there's pieces of the Great Pyramid and pieces of the Taj Mahal. And no doubt he is doing his part to keep something going. Although since it's Mank Gothic Cathedral and not an actual Gothic Cathedral, it's sort of a weird uh, hybrid magic that he's got going on there. Right, and also a, a draining of the magic from the uh, from the ancient rest of the world to uh, into Chicago, straightforward uh, meatpack in Chicago. Um, so, what would happen uh, if there's been some talk about uh, somehow rescuing the stone from its uh, current shame behind the magazine rack? Uh, what uh, occult effects could we uh, expect to look for if it was? Uh, uh, somehow rescued and put on display. Um, if you rescued the stone and, and brought it back out, I think that the first thing that happens, I would be, I, I could go a couple of different ways with it. My first instinct, which might actually not make for really good gaming, there's a great Arthur Machen story called The Great Return, in which the Holy Grail is found in a village in Wales and stays there for a while and then it leaves again. But it has a huge numinous effect on the people of the village. Uh, the, you might want to try reading that and using that as the background element for the bigger story of magic returning or the god Terminus reawakening or London, because now it is the only place with its stone, you know, reassigned. Maybe London and Chicago, because Chicago's got this sort of magical patchwork gallimaufry of everyone else's stones, that those cities are in some way realer or more magic. Maybe in a Shadowrun world, they're the only places that magic works, or in a, another world, it suddenly brings a uh, return to the sort of the, the difficult to understand British authority over the rest of the world, where a guy would show up in a boat with a red coat on and some Scotsman, and he would say, you lot, you're a colony. And they'd say, well, I guess so. And then a couple of years later, they'd say, why are we a colony again? And then they'd be machine gunned. But I, I think that you could maybe see a mystical British empire, like the one that John Dee was postulating being reformed, an, an Arthurian British empire. Uh, as well. I, I, I think that there's a lot of different ways you can go once you start saying we're reinstating the, mas the magical, the numinous power of London. Now, of course, we've been assuming that being behind a magazine rack is a state of, of nullity, but what if the power of the London Stone is being reflected into the magazine rack, and through that, the power of celebrity culture is broadcast to the world? Because, of course, uh, the London tabloids were ground zero for the celebrity obsession that has now uh, gone across the world like a, a, a mental virus. It's our number one obsession now. Uh, even in uh, authoritarian regimes, there's a, a love of celebrity. So perhaps the stone, uh, if removed from there, would uh, bring about a, another uh, revolution that would empower whatever else it was put next to. Yeah, the, the the notion that the stones are actually empowering the magazines or empowering the books is, I suppose, a possibility. London, of course, is a great city of stories, the, the Babylon on the Thames of Robert Louis Stevenson. So the possibility that the uh, magazines are leeching off the magical power as opposed to imprisoning it is an interesting one, and that maybe it's a question of building a diffraction grating over the stone, right? And that the secret masters of the world are the guys who actually stock that newsstand. And so if a London stone is shining right through a magazine, and you, you can think of the celebrities as like tarot images. So Kim Kardashian is currently the empress, and so when it's shining through a picture of Kim Kardashian, then the empress gets power. But if you swap it out for Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, the lovers, then the lovers get the power. And if you swap it back around for Vladimir Putin, who is the 
the, the, the emperor, then the emperor gets his power. And so all of those, you know, uh, magazines are organized in a tarot spread that is empowered by the London Stone. And if you're capable of reading that tarot spread, you can know what the future will hold. And if you can influence the tarot spread, then you get, you're really cooking with gas. And that's why all of the secret conspiracies are actually trying to either control things from the celebrity point of view, or they're trying to actually take over this W.H. Smith's and move the magazines around. So what we need to do is to have W.H. Smith vacate the lease and put a game store in that space right. and stock that rack with copies of Knight's Black Agents and Trail of Cthulhu and Hellfolk and Feng Shui and Ashen Stars. And that would be the thing that would multiply uh, tabletop role-playing's uh, audience uh, many times over. That is obviously uh, something for our good uh, friend and publisher, Simon, to do, and I think we can guarantee him uh, that, like John Stowe, we won't know why he did it or what it was intended to accomplish. Well, if that is not a final note, I don't think I've ever heard one. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep us in guns and non-bread by hitting the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, podcast, or historic rock by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again... We will talk about stuff.